Greetings, church family, and to anyone visiting with us today at one of our in-person gatherings or listening online. This week we are continuing in the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 13 following last week's sermon on verses 24 to 30 and 36 to 43, where we learned about the parable of the weeds, which was preceded by the previous week's sermon on verses 1 to 9 and 18 through 23 regarding the parable of the sower. Mike and Jermaine have done a great job in teaching on these parables in each of their sermons. So let's continue our study in this chapter. If you have a paper or electronic Bible nearby, please locate the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, where we will continue today with a fairly short but important group of verses, 31 to 33, which comprise the third and fourth of eight parables of chapter 13, and wraps up the first part of this chapter. In verse 31 we read, But he, sorry, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour. It was, until it was, all leavened. Our, our gracious God and Father, thank you for the various and marvelous ways you communicate your plans and promises to us. We have heard these two brief parables just now as we've read it and marvel at the profound truths and principles that they illustrate and teach us. Bless us now and give us spirit-led understanding and power to believe and obediently apply your living word to our lives, that your blessing of your gospel and kingdom may continue to bless and uh, a world, a lost world, through the witness of your church, and to all be done ultimately to bring you more glory, which is due your name. In our Lord Jesus Christ, holy name we ask, amen. So in verses 31 to 33, we just uh, read this and conclude that the first of uh, two sections uh, recognized by commentators in uh, Matthew chapter 13. Um, and these uh, address two audiences. The first section is uh, typically regarded as uh, verses 1 through 33 and is addressed to the crowds. And the second section is verses 36 to 52, which we're about to embark on and is uh, addressed to the disciples. As we begin, I, I want to take a few minutes to dwell on and better understand what is meant by the kingdom of heaven, and then the concept of and purpose of parables. Uh, we read about the kingdom uh, and parables all the time, and I think there's a, a lack of understanding, at least on my part. I, I just want the clarity, and I think may, it may benefit you as well. And so we read about the kingdom often, and it is referred to uh, as um, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God uh, throughout the Gospels. And I'm not sure what we understand, uh, what it really means or how it operates. The beginning of verse 31 starts with the phrase, which we have read 13 times prior in Matthew so far, and which is one of Jesus' um, sayings. Um, and in Matthew in particular, it occurs 32 times, this phrase, the kingdom of heaven. And only in Matthew, by the way. Uh, elsewhere, the synonymous phrase, kingdom of God, occurs 68 other times. 
So before we unpack these two parables, we should take a couple of minutes to understand the nature of the object to which they refer. Uh, we could easily do a comprehensive study on the kingdom of God, but now is not the time. Um, so let's just consider the following. The kingdom of God has two key aspects. Uh, the first, of course, is it's universal. The Lord being the sovereign of the universe means that his kingdom is universal. Uh, if you're making notes, you can reference uh, 1 Timothy 6.15. And the second point is that it's personal. Uh, the kingdom of God involves new birth and repentance as God works in and then rules in the hearts of believers before the consummation in heaven uh, with these believers. And you can uh, reference uh, Philippians 1.6. In the first, the big picture view of the kingdom of God is the rule of a sovereign, eternal omniscient, omnipotent God over the entirety of the universe. In the second, personally and individually, the kingdom of God is the spiritual rule over the hearts and lives of those who willingly submit to God's authority. Disregard and disobedience to God's authority consequently confirms those who are not part of the kingdom of God. Anyone who acknowledges the Lordship of Christ and seeks to surrender to God's rule in their hearts belongs to the kingdom of God. Hence, from this perspective, the kingdom of God is spiritual, uh, as it's noted in John 18.36. As we saw earlier in Matthew uh, chapter 4, verse 17, Jesus preached the necessity of repentance to be part of the kingdom of God. There is a critical requirement of and correlation between the salvation of every person and their inclusion in the kingdom of God. In John uh, chapter 3, uh, verses 5 to 7, Jesus uh, tells us, as he's uh, meeting with Nicodemus, uh, by the way, that the kingdom of God uh, must be entered into by being born again. The parables on wheat and tares and weeds that Mike and Germain previously taught us about describe in detail how much opposition there is to the kingdom and how our human and spiritual enemies are hard at work even in the church and sometimes especially in the church and with such an abundance of false disciples and the ongoing rejection that they were experiencing Jesus disciples couldn't be faulted for doubting the survival of this growing but disorganized group that followed him and especially if they saw it the overthrow of not only the Jewish tyrants, but additionally the ominous uh, Roman Empire. This ragtag bunch were not war material. They certainly were not leadership material and could not govern if their lives depended on it. Uh, a really a good statement of how we can think of the kingdom is that it is the rule of God. It is not the rule of the disciples or the rule of the church. It is the rule of God. For those awaiting for the kingdom of God, Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, had finally arrived and publicly presented himself to the nation of Israel. He had been perfectly fulfilling the teachings of the Law and the Prophets, uh, which he was destined to do, uh, according to the Old Testament prophecies, um, and which his Jewish listeners were intimately familiar. Increasingly, the Jewish leaders were threatened by what they saw. and heard regularly regarding his kingdom and would soon actively begin to carry out a plot to kill him for it. 
whether they saw him as a genuine threat for apparently fulfilling the prophecies of Scripture or that he had just become too much of a threat to their political positions is uncertain. Probably the latter, because they demonstrated that they didn't even believe he was the Messiah. Some certainly feared that he, his disciples, and the massive crowd of followers would grow and try to overthrow the reigning leadership structure in Israel to set up a new kingdom in Jerusalem where Jesus would reign as a new king. But everyone would be wrong in their expectations of how God's plan for his kingdom was to be accomplished. What they missed was the prophetic nature of the parables of the kingdom of heaven and its uh, nature, its characteristics, and the timing of its fulfillment. Uh, MacArthur in his commentary helpfully notes, the kingdom in its final fulfillment would be postponed until the time that Israel would believe in and receive her king. That time will be at the second coming of Christ, when he will establish his earthly kingdom for a thousand years. God cannot forsake his promise, and in his grace he will send his son again to offer the kingdom. End of quote. Jesus has already given us a lot of very important information about the kingdom in the first two parables that we have already looked at in this chapter. And very interestingly, these parables have the effect of revealing the truths to Jesus' disciples while concealing knowledge about the kingdom from those who are not his followers. As such, parables are unique literary devices. They are didactic or simply instructive in nature and are a concise method of storytelling to illustrate and reveal profound truths. In this case, about the kingdom of God to Christ's own disciples while effectively hiding these truths from others whose hearts were opposed to him. The same commentary aptly describes this in saying, and I quote, to those with a genuine hunger for God, the parable is both an effective and memorable vehicle for the conveyance of divine truths. Our Lord's parables contain great volumes of truth in very few words, and his parables, rich in imagery, are not easily forgotten. So then, the parable is a blessing to those with willing ears, but to those with dull ears and hearts that are slow to hear, the parable is also an instrument of both judgment and mercy. End of quote. Here, in chapter 13, Jesus gives us a parables with the intent of, to highlight the character of the era and the character of his kingdom, which incorporates his true church that he came to redeem out of the fallen world. A world that he originally created, and more recently, a world that he himself has been born into as the God incarnate, God in human flesh. On this day, he is impressing his hearers and those who will later hear about his plans that will certainly happen between this particular time where he lives and dies on the earth he created and his imminent return for his bride, the church, who he died to redeem. So how will this new kingdom movement survive, grow, and then thrive with all the negative experience thus far in Jesus' ministry and the added warnings of difficulties to yet come, which Jesus has been describing? 
Evil men and demonic forces that seek to destroy Jesus and his followers seem to be far too many and far too powerful when taking a serious look around at what they can offer compared to their opponents. And of those following Jesus, true disciples were very few, with only 12 close to him on a regular and intimate basis. Their numbers seemed to be increasing slowly, but when facing a nation of Jewish citizens who didn't, e- didn't believe the teachings of their own fathers, forefathers, and add the Roman problems and the surrounding heathen nations, they were seemingly doomed. And now, in this third parable, Jesus states that the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. He says this to both encourage and illustrate how this is actually going to work out. To us today, this illustration seems quite anticlimactic because nearly everyone I know today can't practically relate to the significance of this parable. But we must be mindful of those hearing Jesus speak that day because in Palestine, it had immediate and profound significance. The mustard plant was a common and beneficial plant used for medicine and its oils for flavoring uh, for foods and um, this uh, garden plant grew in a region in the region and everyone knew that it had the fame of having a very small seed the smallest of all garden seeds as we already know and yet matured to heights of up to 15 feet tall very impressive indeed for a garden plant The implication is that by his wisdom, God had designed things to confound our skeptical minds. He loves to take that which is small and seemingly insignificant and use it to thwart the apparently intelligent plans of our enemies. This is a key point, and I'll repeat it. He loves to take that which is small and seemingly insignificant and use it to thwart the apparent uh, intelligent plans of our enemies. And... Isn't that how God often works out his designs and plans? Think of a few examples that we take for granted on a daily basis. Take a minute to think of all the complex ideas, equations, literary masterpieces, musical symphonies, software programs, medical knowledge, uh, understanding of the human body, of space, of subatomic particles, and uh, solutions to incredibly difficult problems in this world and our use of computers to solve them. And then think of how much of this is achieved by the combination of only 10 numerals, 0 to 9, with 0 and 1 in binary form uh, actually (laughs) being the basis of all uh, computer programs, and 26 letters, A to Z, and 8 musical notes as a basis uh, for all that we hear uh, in the music world, and how the amazing things that I just described are results of these few and limited elements. Think of also the periodic table and the limited number of elements that make everything up. Innumerable beautiful things are a result of what at first glance might appear to be insignificant things. Think of Shakespeare's plays, Bach's concertos, Einstein's theories, and the endless um, phenomenal and beautiful things that we have the pleasure of uh, knowing and using and owning and experiencing every day. Likewise, a few ragtag fishermen and a tax collector and others with limited education and skills would be used to literally turn the world upside down. 
from Acts seventeen six. We um, we uh, read of this, and uh, until now these men seemed foolish and weak and highly unimpressive in and of themselves, but in God's power and by His Spirit they would soon become the start of an unstoppable kingdom, which the world had not yet known and was not worthy of. If it were God's will that these few men, who pose no threat to anyone, should be used to establish and build his kingdom, he would do just that. It would grow, and it would thrive, and it would succeed. Looking ahead a few chapters, uh, what does Jesus say to Peter in Matthew sixteen eighteen? He tells him that his church would be built upon him, a rock, and that the gates of hell would not prevail against it. And isn't this how God works? He takes uh, the insignificant to uh, confound the wise and to prove that he is sovereign over everything. Um, Things which could not possibly take credit are used so that they don't get credit, so that he gets all the glory. Also, don't forget the previous parables where sowing seeds in pictures of the kingdom and its incredible growth to maturity, um, despite the weeds and the tares. Those living in Palestine were very familiar with the proverb of a mustard seed and and how it, uh, being the smallest garden seed, naturally becomes the largest plant, essentially a tree. It was somewhat self-evident for them, but we uh, living in North America without mustard plants around uh, need to be uh, educated a bit on this. They therefore got the point of the parable right away, if they had any spiritual discernment at all. And his kingdom is not a visible kingdom. Uh, in Luke seventeen twenty to 21 we read, Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. The analogy is that the church, being the body of true believers, and only a handful at the moment, is the mustard seed of seeming insignificance for now, but it will grow to become a force with global and divine presence. The kingdom of heaven will bless the world. People from every tribe, tongue, nation will will be blessed with the good news of the gospel of God's grace and redemption, and all that flows from the wisdom and knowledge that God gives. Believers who comprise the church throughout history, who are living in obedience to God's word on this earth and following his commands and sharing the gospel, have had profound impact on the world with spiritual, moral, and even pragmatic blessings. Such influence is derived from the teachings and practices taught from scripture, which societies have experienced the benefits of, a few being justice systems, prison reform, educational systems, human rights, human dignity, value of people. Um, Think of the concept of defending the rights of uh, women and children, uh, the unborn, the oppressed. The preaching and practice of God's word and its truths has brought such blessings to the societies of the nations who embrace the gospel. And then that spreads to the others who even don't embrace the gospel. Uh, Some will argue that these were not derived from God's word. I am convinced they are. Unfortunately, we don't have the time here to do a deep dive on it, but this would be an interesting and beneficial study to undertake. 
especially in the light of the dramatic uh, debate and, and shifting in our current society, uh, both morally and culturally. Uh, my point, which I uh, believe history supports, is that the very presence and practice of the believing church on earth as God's kingdom brings a sanctifying influence on a lost, suffering world, which is uh, filled with evil. So next, uh, we hit uh, verse 33, uh, which describes concisely the fourth parable in this chapter. And it says, He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. This next parable was also very relatable to those listening. Everyone in that day immediately knew the basic and obvious meaning of using leaven in making daily bread. Typically in that day, women would take wheat and freshly grind it into flour each day, enough to feed their family. To make it rise before baking it required an agent uh, to begin the process of fermentation, that being yeast. The easiest way to do this was to set aside a small piece of leavened dough from the last batch of bread and to fold it into the new batch of dough. Three measures, or pecks as it's sometimes referred to, of flour was a very large amount, almost a bushel. This could feed up to 150 people. And yet a small piece of dough with yeast would cause this significantly large amount of dough to rise. In other words, it had a major and unstoppable influence. Likewise, we who are of the kingdom are to have significant influence because it is God's influence. And it becomes and it sorry, and it comes by his power from his spirit through his word. The influence of the kingdom is the influence of the king, and we are his ambassadors. It should go without saying that we are to be a positive influence. Just as leaven makes dough into tasty bread, so we should make the gospel the utmost demonstration of how it provides a solution for our sin and radically changes sinners and brings joy to those who cannot change themselves. And we are the only ones who can actually testify to God's power and grace. So we have this um, job as his ambassadors that we ought to take very seriously. And joyfully, too. The Jewish nation celebrated the Feast of Unleavened on Passover evening, which was a reminder to the people of Israel of their deliverance from Egypt, their former life of bondage, and all that they experienced there. This uh, required each household to rid themselves of the presence of leavened bread in their homes for the seven days prior to the feast. Leaven was again permitted after the feast, though. An important note to add here, many have heard sermons on this passage before and have been taught, wrongly in my opinion, regarding the significance of leaven in Scripture. Some have examined several biblical references to leaven and have equated it with evil and have come up with an exegesis of this verse that I do not see as being valid for a number of reasons. Some people associate leaven with fermentation and a corrupted or negative connotation exclusively in Scripture. And, and this is because of the many Old Testament references found frequently in Exodus and, and elsewhere and in New Testament verses such as a little leaven leavens the whole lump, Galatians 5.9. And there's verses in Corinthians, of course, to the same effect. But leaven here 
along with the mustard seed, are both seen in nothing but a positive connotation as they represent the kingdom of God, which can be none other than good. Though insignificant in the eyes of the world, they signify those things which are given power from God to overcome evil and all that opposes his kingdom. They represent that which opposes and overcomes the tares and the weeds. Seeing leaven as being something bad is problematic and has no precedence in the teachings uh, from the time when Jesus was speaking of this. A far better way to look at leaven is the concept of pervasiveness. Consider the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, which is negative, contrasted with the kingdom, which is positive, yet both are described as being pervasive. This is an important point because, as we noted earlier, earlier, Jesus has referred to the kingdom of heaven frequently and its coming influence, uh, magnitude, and power, and how God will reign, but there is little evidence of it. Uh, so far as anyone can see. The disciples continue to follow him and serve him, but they surely are questioning and doubting in their minds and getting impatient about setting up this glorious kingdom in Israel that he keeps speaking of, that they keep hearing um, time and again as he speaks to the crowds, but see no evidence of yet. They eagerly desire to see the Jewish and Roman authorities overthrown, they want to see their leader, Jesus, sit on the throne of David as king in Jerusalem and see him destroy his enemies and to share in his power on the earth. But instead of describing a plan to overthrow the reigning powers, he keeps describing how they're going to kill him. God's ways are not like our ways. He is not about showing them government and military might, but instead has intended outcomes that will bring himself far more glory while redeeming sinners, and while reconciling the world to himself. The kingdom is a pervasive and positive influence because its ownership and the inherent characteristics given it by its designer. Leaven might be seen as seen rather as um, what God has given his kingdom, has hidden within it to make it pervasive and effective in a world that is dominated by evil and seeks to destroy it. The kingdom instead is reflected in the lives of those who actually belong to it, the true followers and believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are to have a positive and pervasive influence on a lost, suffering, and dying world. Heavenly Father, we just thank you again for this uh, time when we can look at your word, and we thank you for these parables that you have uh, given us to instruct us on the kingdom on your ways of establishing it in time, the time between your first advent and your and your return that we uh, read of in Revelation. And we we look forward to continuing to be part of, of that time period and, and of those who ha have uh, become believers who now belong to the kingdom of God, who are given that... Uh, privilege of reflecting in our lives um, the kingdom of God and to speak of the truths of the gospel, of the hope of the gospel of our Lord Jesus and and the hope that everyone has for the forgiveness of sin. Help us to uh, 
now discuss these things in ways that will increase our faith and draw us closer to you and help us to serve you in this world. And we just thank you in Christ's name. Amen.